I don't think that it's possible to have a genuine, deliberative community and with argument and contestation without danger. I think politics is a dangerous activity. It always has been. How many people do you have in your life who you both like and disagree with? If, like me, you enjoy being on Twitter, you'll know that disagreement is not in short supply. But if we really want to understand the other side, to bridge divides and even persuade people that we disagree with to think differently, then what's the best way to do that? Our goal was to do something about this problem that people talk not with each other, but just about each other. Welcome back to Polarised, the podcast that's all about the big divides in our culture and our politics. And this week, as Ian has said, especially how to fix them. It's presented by the writer Ian Leslie and by me, Matthew Taylor, from the RSA. This week on Polarised, we're finding out how to talk to the enemy. Now, step one of talking to people we disagree with is probably not to call them the enemy. That's a good call. Yeah, thanks. It's my, my sensitivity training paying off there. There are more top tips where that came from in a moment. Uh, later in the podcast, we'll be talking to the deputy online editor of Die Zeit in Germany about their big experiment, which is about getting thousands of people talking to people they disagree with politically. But before that, we'd like to start these episodes with one of our regular full disclosure uh, segments, so you know where we're coming from and what our assumptions are before we dive into each episode's topic. Matthew, when it comes to getting people to to talk to those they disagree with, I, is that something you give a lot, lot of thought to at the RSA? Yeah, no, I mean, I, I wouldn't want to claim that the RSA is itself um, a hotbed of violent disagreement. I think our our fellows are a kind of broadly progressive uh, group. Well, it's um, run as a benign dictatorship. Nobody's allowed to disagree with you. Yeah, maybe that's true. I don't know. But um, certainly, I, I think back to one or two events where we've asked people in the room whether they were Remainers or Brexiteers, and it has demonstrated a, certainly, a certain homogeneity of thought. However, in terms of my own views being challenged, uh, they were recently, and on this exact topic... Because at the end of last year, uh, we had Professor Michael Sandel speak uh, at the RSA, Harvard professor, well-known for his work, but also well-known for his use of the kind of Socratic dialogue method in working with his students and getting them to think differently. And after the event, and you can hear his uh, lecture and my conversation with him uh, uh, online at the RSA website, he he gave some time to talk to me. I, I wanted to pick up with him a particular question we hadn't really been able to explore on stage. And this was about the role of morality in conversation. Because my view was that if you start a debate from a kind of position of moral conviction, which seems to kind of imply I am morally right and you are morally wrong, that it's almost impossible to make progress with that. I remember many, many years ago uh, being in counselling and talking about rows I was having in my relationship at the time. And I remember the counsellor saying, just have an argument about something practical, like what film you want to go and see or what you want for dinner. Because most of the arguments you seem to have for your partner are about who's a better person. And you're really not going to make much progress in that. So maybe I was influenced too much by that. So when Michael Sandel said that we should welcome into debate issues of morality and ethics, who is right and who is wrong, I wanted to take him up on that 
uh, when we had a bit of time one-to-one. So, Michael, thank you so much for a, a brilliant uh, lecture. So I want to start with this issue of polarisation. The first question is to ask simply whether you think it it's real. Do you think that societies like America, uh, other parts of the world, are genuinely becoming more polarised? Yes, and I think, Matthew, that's mainly because we don't have a language for moral disagreement in politics. I think we, we've shied away from addressing big questions in politics. This is partly because politicians don't like controversy, but it's also because I think we're, we're worried about a disagreement, we're, and, and so we, we shy away from the big questions that matter, but those are exactly the questions that citizens want politics to be about. But what passes for public discourse these days is either narrow managerial technocratic talk, which inspires no one, or where passion does enter, we have shouting matches. I think we need to cultivate the art of listening, which I think is, a, is really a civic art. And it's a condition for genuine democratic argument and debate. You're saying that what we need to do partly to address polarization is to not be afraid to have a conversation, a conversation that is about morality and ethics. Yeah. Right? But but part of my concern is that the politics we have now is too moralized in a sense. Hmm. But that's because the morality is linked to identity. So it is linked on the left from a, a assertion that says that because of my experience, because of what has happened to me, because of the genuine oppression I have suffered and may still be suffering, in a sense... I have a righteousness, which means that I, my place in this conversation must be particularly respected and that any criticism of my view is, uh, is offensive. And on the other hand, kind of the right populism is also in a sense about a kind of a sense that people have been done harm to. So these conversations do feel as if they are moral conversations, but yet right. they feel intractable to me. Yeah, I would, I would say this. First... Politics at its best, democratic deliberation at its best, is messy and contentious, and we should accept that. And sometimes people will bring to politics a sense of injury and will argue from their own experience. I don't think that's a bad thing as such, provided the public discourse invites them, encourages them to reason from their own experience or even their sense of injury to something larger about what makes for a just society, about what we should do about rising inequality, about what we owe one another as fellow citizens, about what the dignity of work consists in. These are, these are big questions. They're ethical questions. We rarely get to them if we just stop with registering our own sense of injury, let's say, as, as you rightly worry. One way of thinking about the public square is that it's safer, certainly more decorous, less clamorous. If we require people to leave their injuries, their, their sense of grievance, their moral and spiritual convictions outside when they enter, I take a different view. I think we should welcome whatever reasons and arguments and convictions people bring with them. Civic life understood in this way is a kind of education 
in citizenship. And part of that education means drawing people out of their own self-interest, but also out of their, the wounds that we carry with us. If all we have is the sense of injury and, and personal grievance, then that makes for uh, impasse. The test is whether we can uh, develop forms of deliberation that invite people to move beyond those impasses. My sense is that the difficulty now is is we are unclear about what are the rules that we have to abide by. So maybe I should be more sanguine about the possibility of people bringing their injuries into the debate. And uh, and I, I see that because if people don't bring their injuries into the debate, then the, the, those people who feel injured will simply feel excluded. And they right. will feel that their emotion and their experience is somehow not allowed in the conversation because it has to be between people who 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 who, who can rise above it. So I get that. But it seems to me that there are two types of rules that we need to have. On the one hand, there has to be a sense that there is a possibility here that we could agree something that will be good for all of us. Yes. And I think pe- some people's worries about what's happening, for example, on American campuses and other parts of the debate and populism is that that notion that we might have a common interest feels quite tenuous. So there are people saying, well, no, I don't think I ever will have a common interest yeah. with you. That notion of the common interest. The notion of the common interest has been used for so long as a proxy for not engaging with my injury. I refuse to sign up to it now. Yeah. And then secondly, that we have to somehow trust each other's motives. That in mediation processes, one of the first things that has to happen is that we have to agree to differ in a sense. I have to agree that you are starting from your, your moral point and I'm starting from my moral point. So my question for you is, what are the rules that have to apply if we are going to create a space where people can talk about injury without it feeling dangerous yes. and possible? I don't think that it's possible to have a genuine, deliberative community and with argument and contestation without danger. I think politics is a dangerous activity. It always has been. I don't think you should be, we should be sanguine that allowing people to bring their moral convictions into public deliberation will lead to something larger and healthy and constructive. There's no guarantee of that, which is what makes politics, democratic politics, risky. I see what you mean by setting out certain rules I would like to amend that slightly by saying I would hope that the regulative ideals of public deliberation would be embodied in norms that Mm. would arise through practice and experience. Mm. I've been teaching courses in moral and political philosophy for some years. And in addition to reading about what famous philosophers of, of the past have said, We apply their arguments to contemporary issues, sometimes quite fraught ones, including questions about affirmative action and whether race should count as a factor in admissions, including questions about same-sex marriage, as well as questions about distributive justice, who deserves what and why. Now, these are fraught questions that sometimes touch on people's very immediate experiences and self-understandings. I've never announced or laid down explicit rules of engagement. But what I have tried to do is to quickly give people a sense of what counts as a valuable contribution to the discussion and what doesn't. 
so that through practice, engaging one another, even across substantial disagreements, people develop and internalize norms of respectful, civil, public discourse. And I think that those norms of civility are a better way of achieving the kind of common public discourse than setting out rules in advance. Do you see what I mean by rules versus norms? I completely see it. And and I have seen norms in our our society improve dramatically. You know, I am old enough to... Been a time around time when casual racism was okay, right. when homophobia was rife. Yeah. So I've seen those norms improve. Yeah. So it is possible. But yeah, I look now at politics. You have a president who has rejected all yes. the norms that are previously applied. Right. All the norms about telling the truth or about respect for, for institutions, yeah. all of that. And then not to mention social media, which is an yeah. enormous, normless kind yeah. of jungle yes. where do we reconstruct the norms that are necessary for that so i think you i mean you you have influenced my thinking in the sense that we have to create a space where people can feel passion where they can express injury where morality can be there i mean i get all of that but i think it's got to be bounded by a set of norms you've said that where do we rebuild those norms where it feels as though what's happening around society is that the norm breakers are getting away with it yeah. and that the space of normlessness is growing Yes. Well, I I think, Matthew, you've defined our current predicament beautifully and powerfully. And sadly, there is an erosion of norms of civil discourse. And my president, the U.S. president, is uh, one of the major offenders in this regard. Now, here's a case where sometimes in politics, in government, Norms are not, are not enough, and one needs rules. And here's a very concrete example. There has been a norm in American politics that the candidates of the major parties release publicly their tax returns. <laughs> this was a norm, not a law, yes. and he violated it and got away with it. Here's a case where I think there should be a law, a rule, as a result of having uh, lost the norm, that all presidential candidates must release their tax returns mm. to the public. So sometimes one needs to shore up norms with laws or rules. But as for deliberation among citizens, I think, I think you've put it very well. One of the major public challenges, civic challenges, is to try to reconstruct the norms. And that won't happen by accident it won't happen automatically or spontaneously. It requires, I think, deliberate undertakings. I think we have to look to civil society, various places within civil society, to create venues and occasions. And our education system, surely, as well. And the education system and the media, which I think has largely failed in its responsibility to provide fora for genuine reflection and deliberation of this kind. So civil society, voluntary associations and societies, the educational system and the media are places that have to go about the business of repairing the norms of civil argument and disagreement as a way of repairing our civic life. Michael, thank you so much for giving us your time. My pleasure, Matthew. Thank you.
So, Ian, what did you think of that? Uh, really, really interesting. I, I thought he made a, a good and potentially kind of optimistic point, um, which slightly reframes what's going on here, which is that it's a good thing that we're now discussing these these big questions, even if that means that a lot of the disagreements are more passionate and some of them are quite unpleasant, because democracy should be a little, a little bit risky. That actually, unless you're really contesting the, the big questions about how to how to run a society, um, then you end up getting stuck stuck in very kind of dry technocratic debates, um, which uh, and and you kind of get a gradual disengagement with with politics. So maybe we need to go through these periods of more confront, confrontational periods of democracy to make it work. Yeah, and and as I as you heard me say in the interview, I was kind of influenced by what Michael said, and I kind of absolutely get that the idea of kind of privileged people like me who've done quite well out of the way the world is waving our fingers at people who feel angry and passionate and hurt and saying, oh, you mustn't leave all that stuff at the door if you want to have a civilised debate. I kind of absolutely get that that doesn't, doesn't work. Uh, I, I, I do, however, think that this issue of rules and norms is important. You know, and maybe it's just me. And I, I, I don't like confrontation. I'm not good at confrontation. So I guess there's a kind of point in me where I, it gets to a certain level and I just kind of check out. So I would want to say, look, if we are going to bring everything into this conversation, let us at least agree that there are some kind of ground rules to the game. Anyway, we, we have on the programme today the opportunity to do something unusual, which is we've talked about the theory of debate, contestation, and what you bring to that. We're now able to talk about the practice. Hi, this is Maria. Hello, Maria. It's Ian here. Hi. Are you recording on your side, says James. Okay, so... Okay, we're running. Okay, we'll, we'll jump in. We are joined on the line by Maria Exner. Is that how I pronounce it, Maria? That, that was great. Oh, gosh. Oh, I'm surprised. Better than some... No, better than some of my German colleagues. <laughs> <laughs> Too kind. Okay. Deputy Editor-in-Chief of Zeit Online in Berlin. Hello, Maria. Hi there. Can we start by talking about this amazing project... Uh, of yours, My Country Talks. Um, can you give us an idea of uh, how it came about, what, what the political context was in Germany when you started the project? Mm -hmm. we, uh, we started the project in 2017, a couple of months before the general election in Germany. And it was really, the idea really came to our mind in the aftermath of actually the Brexit referendum, also the election of Donald Trump, also the very close not election of the Front National in uh, France. And what all of these political earthquakes had in common from our perspective was that seemingly two parts of a society were really growing uh, very much apart and that the media, the press, our colleagues in different countries didn't really anticipate what was happening or what would be happening. So they kind of lost contact also with what part of the society uh, was really thinking at that time and so we thought okay we have two maybe jobs to do one is to make sure that we as german national news outlets do still have contact with most parts or like the biggest part of our society and also what could we do to maybe get people not being so apart from each other, not being in their respective filter bubble and then have very radical maybe voting outcomes, um, but rather, uh, you know, kind of make them maybe uh, be stay in touch with each other. 
And that was very much the, the thinking around when the idea of, uh, of My Country Talks or Germany Talks, really the first edition was, came, came about. And do you see, uh, just a, before we move on to, to how the project actually works, do, do you see similar divisions in, in Germany as you do in the, the US and, and the UK? One of our big dividing lines, and I think that's true of both countries, is education. There seems to be a kind of growing divide between people who went to college and, and people who didn't. But just generally, are, are you seeing that kind of polarization to some extent in Germany? I think uh, we're really maybe not that clear about it. I think, uh, as you mentioned, the kind of education, educational divide in Germany is pretty strong. So uh, we, what we know is that uh, from uh, somebody from a working class background, it's very hard to move up the education ladder and then also the income ladder, much harder than in other European countries. So there is this kind of divide in Germany. But we also really felt a, a stronger, and that was in the you know, kind of run up to the the AFD as a as a right wing populist party m- being on its way to move into the German Parliament for the first time, that there was really also a, a stronger division between left and right, and then and this and a bigger kind of part of the German society that was actually kind of, you know, kind of th- thinking about really voting for a much more right wing party than, than they did in the past where the CDU, our, our main mainstream party, was really the place to go f- to for, for people who had a conservative mindset. Is there a geographical dimension to this uh, in terms of in France, of course, it's, kind of, it's the kind of cities versus the periphery. Here a bit, it's the kind of southeast versus the rest. In Germany, is it, is it west and east? Is that part of this as well? Absolutely, yeah. I think uh, West versus East is especially um, in the, you know, kind of the voting behavior around the Alternative für Deutschland, as as we call it, the AFD, the right-wing populist, has a st- much stronger grip on the former East uh, than it does on the West, although there are strongholds in the former West part of Germany of this party as well. And I think there is also, as you mentioned, the rural-urban divide is also more pronounced in Germany today than it has been maybe 15 or 20 years ago. Okay, so let's talk about the project itself. Uh, Can you tell us uh, how it works and what it's done so far? Yeah, so the the idea that we had was, okay, we have this election by the end of or September 2017, and we want to make sure that we know what people are talking about, um, but we also want to make sure that people stay in contact with each other. So so our idea was pretty simple was okay, people should meet and talk about politics. And I think that's a pretty straightforward idea that many people have in mind that that would be a nice thing. And I think what then happened was that we thought really strongly about how we can use our force that is our homepage, the 10 million users that we reach via our online uh, news homepage. Um, how how that can help to bring these conversations about. And so we thought, okay, first of all, we have to know who has the one or the other political view. So we developed a questionnaire with really strong, five very strongly, maybe polarizing political questions. And we asked people to answer these questions. And just, you know, very straightforward. Um, For example, one question was, did Germany accept too many refugees into the country? Yes or no? Along these yes and no lines, we then ask people, do you want to maybe meet somebody who has answered these exact same questions completely to the contrary? 
that was kind of the moment I think we um, made people be excited about this idea and and then we matched everybody who was in the database um, had perfect matches which are people who are on five questions they are the exact opposite our algorithm kind of paired up people up to the point where they only were one or two questions apart and these pairs we then introduced to each other via email and asked if they would really like to meet each other um, you know, we thought, okay, this is a really kind of crazy experimental idea. So probably maybe we can get 500 people to to sign up for this. And then we had 12,000 people sign up for this wow. on the spot in 2017. And then we were able to produce 1,200 people that went into 600 couples. And they actually met on a day in 2017. From almost every couple, we received an email at this very night after they met. And the people were so excited about them having had the bravery to do that and their experience meeting somebody they would have never met otherwise. Really, the the, the, the best feedback was, hey, um, there was somebody I, I really thought I would dislike from what he or she had answered to these political questions and it turned out I, I met such a lovely person and we have so many things in common. And it doesn't didn't really matter that much in the end that this person has a completely different political view than I do. And and I think this feedback and them being so excited about it was really also what, what gave us the motivation or almost like a, um, an obligation to do this again, to kind of create not just a single project, but kind of produce something that enables us and other media companies to do this in different parts of the world again and again. And that was kind of the, the moment when the bigger My Country Talks project began. Okay, so so before we get on to the bigger project, can I just ask, did you give people um, sort of rules on what to talk about or a format on on how to, or do you just sort of get, they just get together and Yeah, then... yeah. What we did was uh, we sent them um, a link to a video we had produced with a, with a kind of rhetoric coach, somebody who is, um, you know, kind of mm. rhetoric uh, an coach, expert yeah. in Germany. Yeah, yeah. Um, somebody in Germany who, who knows how to have a good conversation in terms of listening to the argument that the other people makes, always think that the other person has good intentions and not bad intentions in talking to you. In these conversations, though, Maria, did... Uh, did people talk about politics yeah. for a lot of the conversation or did they uh, did they talk about politics for the minimum possible time because that is still actually uncomfortable and then they could move on to talking about you know football and cooking and you know the the the, the, the things they had in common as uh, as people because if it's the if it's the latter that politics was only a part of the conversation and they then focused on the things they other things they had in common then what does it achieve in the sense that you know, the, the problem is political opinions that might lead to political parties taking control who are authoritarian and divisive. And me knowing that somebody who's a kind of semi-fascist or a kind of raving communist is actually quite a nice person and we go to the same kind of nightclub, why is that a, why is that a good thing in itself? Yeah, yeah. So um, f maybe to, to start with the first question was, did we ask them to talk politics all the time? No, we didn't. Like, And what happened, what we read from the feedback was that they really went step by step through these questions that we initially just set out to, you know, be kind of the starter for this or just our way to, to find people to match with each other. But they really went through all of these questions. One question was, for example, 
does the West treat Russia fairly? And we received so much feedback about in what depth the, this question has been discussed in the conversation. So from what I am, um, you know, the, the beauty of this project is that we are not there when the people talk. So I cannot, you know, kind of be 100% sure about the percentage of how much politics talk was happening. But from what I read from the feedback that we received in 2017 and also this year is that the people take this extremely serious and they really talk about the questions and about, you know, kind of refugee policy, about the rise of Donald Trump. Um, we had a question about if meat should be taxed in Germany in order to, um, to do something about climate change. And they really, you know, kind of had in-depth discussions. And I think to your question, what is achieved? You know, for us, it was really not... We didn't set out to prohibit the AFD in, in the German context. It is, is the AFD as, a, as the right-wing extreme party to enter the German parliament. That was not our goal. Our goal was to do something about this problem that people talk not with each other, but just about each other. And I think in order to understand why people are angry, why people do want to see a policy change about this or that topic... I think in this regard, these uh, conversations do actually achieve qu quite something. And have you have you kind of taken any particular lessons about what makes these conversations go well? Or I guess it's hard to tell unless you have the record of the actual conversations. But you, you didn't have any kind of no, nobody got into a fight or anything like that. No, like last year, two thousand seventeen, we had these uh, six hundred conversations. This year, it was four thousand conversations in Germany. Uh, so more than 8,000 people met and we didn't have any negative feedback in, in, the, in the sense of we got into a fight or, um, or I don't know, my, my conversation partner was uh, rude or, um, or I stopped these conversations after five minutes. We didn't get any of this and we asked quite broad for feedback also this year. And do you think, Maria, now this, now this is scaling up, do you think it's influencing German society more widely What I do think is uh, this year, you know, the, the Germany Talks event was not just us who has uh, hosted this, but we asked 10 different uh, media partners in Germany to do this together with us, mainly because we wanted to have a more diverse set of people in the participant list. All of these media companies have also covered the event and, and the conversations. So I think although maybe only... 28,000 people have registered and 8,000 people met, actually. I think many, many thousands, maybe a million people in Germany have seen or gotten to know about that this project happened. What I heard from people who don't know that I'm involved, but had heard something about the project because a friend maybe told them, uh, what they say is, oh, this is like finally somebody does something against polarization. So I think... It sparks a positive feeling about the future. And I think, I hope in this uh, sense that my country talks and, and Germany talks is contributing something uh, to, to the bigger societal state we are in. Well, I, we think it's a fantastic project and you're, you're planning to run this across Europe. Tell us about that. T tell us how people can get involved. Mm -hmm. We have pledged to give this, um, I mean... Maybe I can say that My Country Talks is run on a software that we have developed and we have pledged to, to make this available to any media company who asks us to, to give it to them and host a national or maybe even local 
My Country Talks event, which can be in any country in Europe, also in the world. We are currently also talking, for example, to a news room in Alaska and they want to do this in Alaska. And we are also talk talking to people in New Zealand and in, in Argentina and in Chile. But we are still very much open to other media companies and people who run newsrooms, digital newsrooms, to get in touch and, and just talk about if, if we can make a, um, an event in their specific contexts happening. And what we want to do in uh, 2019, because it's uh, the election to the European Parliament, um, the circle of European media partners that has already once met in the beginning of this year, we together had the feeling that it would be very interesting to try to do something across Europe, asking people in all of um, the countries that we are involved in the same questions and maybe even try to match people across borders, across countries and try to maybe engage somebody from Poland with somebody from Norway, with somebody from Italy into a conversation about you know, European topics that don't necessarily have to be let's talk about the EU, but maybe rather let's talk about common threats, common problems, common hopes that we have across Europe. And we would love to do that with as many uh, media partners in Europe as, as possible. Well, I hope that some media bosses in, in the UK are listening to this and, and get in touch because it does sound like a, a wonderful project. Yeah. Uh, with regards to what's happening right now in the UK, I think it would be a really great idea to have a kind of uh, conversation also within the uh, United Kingdom. Me too. Uh, Maria Exner, thank you very much for speaking to us. I was very happy to be on the show. Thank you. Well, Ian, I thought that was fascinating. I, I wonder whether it's too late for us to be trying to address issues like like, like Brexit through such a process. But, you know, you have to start somewhere. And I, I think what is interesting, thinking about the conversation with Maria and the conversation that we had with Michael, is that, as Michael put it, you, you don't develop these norms by accident. And if we want to develop kind of processes which help us to overcome polarization, whether it's deliberative democracy, which, you know, is my obsession, or just civic engagement, as Maria was talking about, then, you know, we're going to have to make an effort and we're going to have to do it. And... Uh, Full credit to her in terms of the fact that she's kind of, you know, not sat back, but but taken the initiative. And it'll be great to see that in the UK. Anyway, before we go, we end each episode with a provocation, something that's shifted the way that we look at the world just a little bit. And this is an opportunity, Ian, for me to ask you the loveliest question uh, that any author can ever be asked. Ian, can you discuss the book you're working on? Well, seeing as you asked, Matthew, <laughs> yes, I can. Um, and uh, working on is, is uh, are the operative words here because I'm sort of in the middle of it and kind of shaping it as I go. But but it's basically about disagreement and conflict and, and how to handle it better in all so sorts of theme, situations. Then. So very much on theme. Um, so as I found the, the conversation with Maria really fascinating. One of the – I'll just tell you a bit about what I'm – writing about what I'm researching right at the moment, um, just one bit of the book, uh, which is about uh, the sort of science of relationships, personal relationships and, and, and couples uh, in particular. The guys who do this look at communication between couples uh, along two dimensions. In fact, this isn't just um, a model that's used in, in 
couples. It's, it's used in lots of places where, where there's any kind of communication going on. But they say in any conversation, it's particularly a, a difficult conversation where there's conflict involved. There are two, essentially two different conversations going on at the same time. There's the content of, of what you're talking about, the content dimension, and the, there's the relationship dimension. So, so the content dimension is what we are actually explicitly talking about, like whether or not uh, you are going out too much at the moment and I'm not see- we're not seeing enough of each other. And then there's the the relationship part of the conversation, which is sort of unspoken, which is more emotional and more to do with how are you relating to me? Are you giving me enough respect? Do you care about me? Uh, And that kind of thing. Essentially, conflicts go, or argument, marital arguments or any kind of arguments go really badly when one part of the, 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 the conversation, when one member of the conversation is focusing on the content bit and the other person is focusing on the relationship bit. It might not surprise you to know that it's typically the man who gets more caught up in the content of, you know, how many nights am I going out during the week? And how many nights do you go out? And let's, let, let's talk about that. Whilst the uh, typically the, the female part, partner in the relationship is really kind of thinking about, okay, you know, what what is what you're saying? How does it reflect on me and our relationship? And, and she gets increasingly upset because she thinks that he's not really addressing those re- real issues. And I find this fascinating, you know, just in, in its own context, but also because you can apply it to to politics too right so you could say that that the problem with the the remain versus leave debate in brexit was that the remainers were very much focused on the content um whilst the leavers and leave voters were saying hey what about the relationship so the remainers were saying well you know let's let's look at the kind of economic prognosis and and what's going on and our kind of political trading relationship with europe and the leavers were were saying implicitly or, or or explicitly hang on a minute you don't respect us. That's what this is about. I, I'd love to talk to you about that more, although I, I'm not sure you would respect me sufficiently to listen to my views. <laughs> How Ian. can you say that? <laughs> That's it for this episode of Polarised. Polarised was presented by Ian Leslie and by me, Matthew Taylor. The producer was James Shield, with production help from Munia Myberg at Zeit Online, and we were brought to you by the RSA. <laughs>